Read the first 30 verses of Joshua 10. God's Word at Joshua 10, verses 1 through 30. Now it came to pass when Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, had heard how Joshua had taken Ai and had utterly destroyed it, as he had done to Jericho and her king, so he had done to Ai and her king, and how the inhabitants of Gibeon had made peace with Israel and were among them, that they feared greatly, because Gibeon was a great city as one of the royal cities, and because it was greater than Ai, and all the men thereof were mighty." Wherefore, Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, sent unto Hoham, king of Hebron, and unto Piram, king of Jarmuth, and unto Jephiah, king of Lachish, and unto Deber, king of Iglon, saying, Come up unto me, and help me, that we may smite Gibeon, for it hath made peace with Joshua and with the children of Israel. Therefore the five kings of the Amorites, the king of Jerusalem, the king of Hebron, the king of Jarmuth, the king of Lachish, the king of Iglon, gathered themselves together and went up, they and all their hosts, and encamped before Gibeon and made war against it. And the men of Gibeon sent unto Joshua to the camp to Gilgal, saying, Slack not thy hand from thy servants. Come up to us quickly and save us and help us. For all the kings of the Amorites that dwell in the mountains are gathered together against us. So Joshua ascended from Gilgal, he and all the people of war with him, and all the mighty men of valor. And the Lord said unto Joshua, Fear them not, for I have delivered them into thine hand. There shall not a man of them stand before thee. Joshua therefore came unto them suddenly, and went up from Gilgal all night. And the Lord discomfited them before Israel, and slew them with a great slaughter at Gibeon, and chased them along the way that goeth up to Beth Horon, and smote them to Azekah and unto Makeda. And it came to pass, as they were fled from before Israel, and were in the going down to Beth Horon, that the Lord cast down great stones from heaven upon them unto Azekah, and they died. They were more which died with hailstones than they whom the children of Israel slew with a sword. Then spake Joshua to the Lord in the day when the Lord delivered up the Amorites before the children of Israel. And he said in the sight of Israel, Son, stand thou still upon Gibeon, and thou moon in the valley of Ajalon. And the sun stood still, and the moon stayed, until the people had avenged themselves upon their enemies. Is not this written in the book of Jasher? So the sun stood still in the midst of heaven, and hasted not to go down about a whole day. And there was no day like that, before it or after it, that the Lord hearkened unto the voice of a man, for the Lord fought for Israel. And Joshua returned and all Israel with him unto the camp to Gilgal. But these five kings fled and hid themselves in a cave at Makeda. And it was told Joshua, saying, The five kings are found hid in a cave at Makeda. And Joshua said, Roll great stones upon the mouth of the cave, and set men by it for to keep them. And stay ye not, but pursue after your enemies, and smite the hindmost of them. Suffer them not to enter into their cities. 
For the Lord your God hath delivered them into your hand. And it came to pass, when Joshua and the children of Israel had made an end of slaying them with a very great slaughter, till they were consumed, that the rest which remained of them entered in defensed cities. And all the people returned to the camp to Joshua at Makeda in peace. None moved his tongue against any of the children of Israel. Then said Joshua, Open the mouth of the cave, and bring out those five kings unto me out of the cave. And they did so, and brought forth those five kings unto him out of the cave, the king of Jerusalem, the king of Hebron, the king of Jarmuth, the king of Lachish, and the king of Eglon. And it came to pass, when they brought out those kings unto Joshua, that Joshua called for all the men of Israel, and said unto the captains of the men of war which went with him, Come near, put your feet upon the necks of these kings. And they came near and put their feet upon the necks of them. And Joshua said unto them, Fear not, nor be dismayed. Be strong and of good courage, for thus shall the Lord do to all your enemies against whom ye fight. And afterward Joshua smote them and slew them and hanged them on five trees. And they were hanging upon the trees until the evening. And it came to pass at the time of the going down of the sun that Joshua commanded, and they took them down off the trees and cast them into the cave wherein they had been hid, and laid great stones in the cave's mouth, which remain until this very day. And that day Joshua took Makeda and smote it with the edge of the sword, and the king thereof he utterly destroyed, them and all the souls that were therein. He let none remain, and he did to the king of Makeda, as he did unto the king of Jericho. Then Joshua passed from Makeda and all Israel with him unto Libna, and fought against Libna, And the Lord delivered it also, and the king thereof, into the hand of Israel. And he smote it with the edge of the sword, and all the souls that were therein. He let none remain in it, but did unto the king thereof, as he did unto the king of Jericho. We're going to end our reading there, but the chapter goes on to speak of more cities that Joshua goes to, fights against, and conquers. I call your attention to verses 12 through 14 of the chapter. Then spake Joshua to the Lord in the day when the Lord delivered up the Amorites before the children of Israel. And he said in the sight of Israel, Sun, stand thou still upon Gibeon, and thou moon in the valley of Ajalon. And the sun stood still, and the moon stayed, until the people had avenged themselves upon their enemies. Is not this written in the book of Jasher? So the sun stood still in the midst of heaven and hasted not to go down about a whole day. And there was no day like that before it or after it, that the Lord hearkened unto the voice of a man, for the Lord fought for Israel. Beloved saints in Christ, and then children specifically. Do you notice that the text drew our attention to not one, but two amazing things that happened that day? Of course, for the sun to stand still in the moon so that what is ordinarily a 24-hour period of time becomes essentially a 48-hour period of time in which the sun is shining. That's a miracle. But there's one other thing, and this is the thing that the Holy Spirit draws our attention to, 
There was no day like that before it or after it that the Lord hearkened unto the voice of a man. Where else in the Old Testament do you see a man? I know Moses did miracles. I know Joshua did. But where else do you see a man without Jehovah telling that man that Jehovah would do a miracle? Where else do you see a man saying to the Son, Stand still! And the man can't make the sun stand still. Only God can. The Lord hearkened unto the voice of a man. Two amazing things of which our text speaks. And the effect is that rather early in Joshua's leadership of Israel, after Moses had died, God makes plain to all Israel, just as you had to listen to Moses, you'd Better listen to Joshua. He is the man I raised up to lead you. Let's back up and get the history at the point at which the text speaks of it. Israel has crossed the Jordan River. And the first city to which they've come was the city of Jericho. You remember how Israel took the city of Jericho. By extremely unconventional methods, and not with any weapons, so to speak, because it was the Lord who fought for Israel and gave the city, Jericho, into their hands. When Israel captured Jericho, they now controlled a part of the Jordan River Valley, the lower Jordan, about eight miles or so in length. And they made their camp... Gilgal, a few miles away from Jericho, they pitched at Gilgal, and that was their base of operations. From that base of operations, they went westward into the promised land and found Ai and Bethel. Again, great stories that I won't retell, but the Holy Scriptures teach us how the people took the cities of Ai and Bethel. When they took Ai and Bethel, although they weren't great cities in themselves, They now controlled not only a strip of land along the Jordan River, but a strip of land cutting through the middle of the land of Canaan, much land and many kings to the the north, and much land and many kings to the south must still be conquered, but they control a little strip of land dividing the land, as it were, in half. And next, there are the Gibeonites. The city of Gibeon, we read, was far larger than that of Ai or Bethel. If there was any Canaanite city and people that said, it is up to us to stop these Israelites, and maybe we can do it, it would have been the Gibeonites. But instead they tricked the Israelites because they understood that they did not have power against Jehovah, the God of Israel. And so they tricked the Israelites. They came to them with old, ripped-up clothing, and moldy bread. And they said, we're just like you. We're not from this area. We left our home some time back. When we left our home, our bread was fresh. Our clothes were brand new. Now you can see from how we live and the bread and the food we have that we're just like you, so have mercy on us. And Joshua made a mistake. He did not ask counsel at the mouth of the Lord. And he made a vow a treaty to keep these Gibeonites alive. It's that 
It isn't so much, first of all, what Israel has done to Jericho, Ai, and Bethel. It's what Gibeon has done in making a treaty with Israel that gets the five kings of the south in a tizzy. And now they must band together, and their goal isn't so much to take on Israel, it's to take on Gibeon. And it's in connection with that battle, the battle of the five kings of the south with the Gibeonites, and then the Israelites will come to assist them, that these two wonderful events set forth in our text take place. They're so wonderful that they're recorded for the church of Jesus Christ to know and to remember. On the one hand, our text says, this is written in the book of Jasher, the book of the righteous, literally. We don't have that book with us. It's not one of the inspired books, but it was evidently a book in which some of Israel's history was set forth, and especially, probably, a poetic rendition of what Jehovah had done. Maybe, can't be certain, maybe a book that set forth history poetically so the Israelites could sing it and remember the great things Jehovah had done. Now we have some of those in our Psalms, don't we? Some of the Psalms recount Israel's history. But that's the book of Jasher. Not only is the event written in the book of Jasher, it's written in the inspired Scriptures. And that's why I can preach on it today. And that's why I can preach on it. Not just to say, there's an amazing thing that happened sometime way back. I'll tell you a story. But I can preach on it to say, there's an amazing God who is still amazing, still powerful, still gracious, still has his eye on his people, still defends them from their enemies, so that you, beloved, and the church of Christ everywhere, though beset by enemies and sin, are safe. Let's hear that gospel message from the text under the theme, the day that lasted two days. Notice first, Jehovah's doing. Second, Jehovah's means. And third, Jehovah's purpose. We begin with that wonder that strikes every one of us. The sun and the moon stood still and stayed until the people had avenged themselves upon their enemies. The sun stood still in the midst of heaven and hasted not to go down about a whole day. Verse 13 sets forth the wonder with which we begin. When the kings of the south came against the Gibeonites, the Gibeonites, as we read earlier in Joshua 10, sent messengers to Gilgal. They're 20 miles away. The Gibeonites. And the kings of the south are now gathered against the Gibeonites. And they need to send messengers 20 miles away to Joshua and to the Israelites at Gilgal. And then Joshua and the Israelites must come 20 miles in order to help defend the Gibeonites. And Joshua and the Israelites had a prime opportunity to say, they tricked us. And we were foolish to ally ourselves with them. Send a messenger back to them saying, sorry, just can't help you right now. And just maybe they'll be destroyed and we'll be free of our vow. 
But do you understand that God's people keep vows even not when they're vows to sin? No. But they keep vows that aren't to their personal advantage even when they have an opportunity to try to get out of it. That's faithfulness to one's word. And Joshua and the Israelites were. So not only do they help the ones who they might have thought not to help, but they give of themselves. They travel through the night. 20 miles was as the crow flies, by the way. The road itself may have been longer. No one says it was direct. It certainly was up hills and down hills. This was not an easy trip. They're bringing some of their uh, ammunition and, and weapons with them. And arrive. In the morning, to fight an enemy that is more numerous, more skilled, and better equipped militarily than are the Israelites and the Gibeonites. But don't worry, the Lord fought for Israel. And so we read in the context that the Lord discomfited the enemy, which is really to say that He turned them against each other. He did that other times in the Old Testament, where the enemy, so afraid, almost lost their head, as it were, and they started turning on each other. And that's one thing. And another thing is, showing that Jehovah fought for Israel, that when people started running, the Lord rained down hailstones from heaven, and they were more which died with hailstones than they whom the children of Israel slew with the sword. So in the end of the day, the Israelites are not saying, we're stronger, we're better. In the end of the day, the Israelites are saying, we did fight. We did fight because we were called to fight. But to the Lord be honor, praise, and glory, and thanksgiving, because He has given us the victory. It's as the enemy is discomfited, as they're scattered, and they're fleeing, that Joshua says to the Israelites, we'll chase them, they may get back in their fenced cities, we need to kill these men before they get there. It's as they are fleeing that Joshua says, Son Stand thou still upon Gibeon, and thou moon in the valley of Agilon. And some people, trying to imagine the scenario, think, well, it must have been kind of late in the day. The sun is maybe heading towards the western horizon. And so, Joshua needs more daylight. But that's not the way the text presents it. When the sun stood still, it was in the midst of heaven. It wasn't near the going down point, but even more the geography. Sun, stand thou still upon Gibeon in the east, and thou moon in the valley of Agilon in the west. It is, if not noon, it is forenoon. And the sun is going to stay at a spot somewhere in the eastern regions of the sky, and it is not going to move for 24 full hours, during which time the Israelites fight and destroy many of the people 
in the whole southern part of Israel. The day and all that happened that day brings us through about verse 28. And that day Joshua took Makeda and smote it with the edge of the sword. And apparently when we read then that Joshua passed from Makeda and they go on, don't think that everything that happens in the entire chapter happens in that day, but much did happen in that day. Now the central wonder, especially that we're considering the first point, is that the sun and the moon stood still. And I'm telling you, this is the the first point of the sermon, that this was Jehovah's doing. And no child of God may question that. It's not only His doing by virtue of Him being the God of providence, that of course is true, it was His doing inasmuch as He caused the miracle to happen. There's no man that controls the rising and the setting of the sun. We think sometimes we have power. We get a little arrogant, we can, about what we're able to do. You can't. You can't put brakes on the sun. You can't cause the moon to rise. And we all know that. Jehovah stopped the sun and the moon in their courses. But now there are those who will say, yeah, right. Be realistic. There was no day like that, before it or after it, because it couldn't happen then either. That's the response of unbelief. There's going to be some who say, how unscientific the Bible is. The sun stood still? See, they didn't even know then that the sun always stands still, and it's the earth that revolves. And the child of God says to that, that's, that's silliness. I know my science. I'm not disputing the science. We all speak of the sun and the moon and the heavens as we see them from the viewpoint of how we view them with our feet planted on the earth. Let's not call in science to explain this away. Another man says, well, this is a poetic rendition In the end, we don't read in Joshua of the exact history. We only read a reflection after the fact on how it sort of went. You can't take every word literally. And another says, they got so much done in one day that it seemed like two days. And against all of those, you say, Jehovah did it. It happened the way the Bible says. And Jehovah did a miracle here. And now on the rest of the first point, I'm going to drive home why that matters. And what you lose if you explain away the miracle. In the first place, we have in the text a clear demonstration of the omnipotent. The unlimited power of the sovereign God whom we know and worship. I said already that no human can hold the sun still. A farmer, as he's sowing his field, as he's harvesting, doesn't say to the sun, stand still. A mother 
who has more to do than she can possibly get done in a day, isn't able to say to the sun, stand still, I've got so much to do in the daylight hours. It doesn't work. Jehovah God has this power. And it's a power that He exercises and manifests through Jesus Christ at His right hand. Now, of course, Jesus Christ in Joshua 10, the time that happened, was not yet born in the flesh, had not yet died and risen, was not yet exalted to the right hand of God. Nonetheless, the power of Jehovah, as manifest in this text, is a power that He manifests through Christ, even the pre-incarnate Christ. And that points us, not then just to a God who controls all creation, but a Jesus Christ who is the Lord of creation. You lose that if you're going to explain away the miracle. And it's for this reason that we can say that this miracle which Joshua did, he being a type of Christ, but I'll develop that one more later, this miracle that Joshua did really points us ahead to the Miracles Jesus Christ would do, stilling the wind and the waves, and other miracles that showed He was the Lord of creation. He can tell creation what to do. Because Jesus Christ can tell creation what to do, this event also points us today when Jesus Christ comes again on the clouds of heaven. And he doesn't tell the sun and the moon to stand still. But he makes the stars and the moon fall from their courses and the moon turns to blood and the sun goes away because he doesn't need these creatures anymore in the new heavens and the new earth which he's about to create. Jesus Christ, the Lord of creation, From the Old Testament perspective, before Christ was exalted at God's right hand, Jehovah God, the all-powerful God. That's our God, beloved. Every explaining away of a miracle is a way of saying of Jehovah, it's not much. I'm as strong as He is. And that is folly. And the second place that this is Jehovah's doing underscores that Jehovah has a covenant relationship with Israel. He didn't cause the sun and the moon to stand still so that the enemies had more time to run and could get to safety. He caused the sun and the moon to stand still so that Joshua and the Israelite armies could do the work that he called them to do. The Israel whom he redeemed from Egypt's bondage and brought through the Red Sea and led through the wilderness, even though they tried his patience and showed themselves to be sinners, that Israel whom he brought through the, uh, across the Jordan River, he would give the promised land. This land is a picture of heaven and Israel is the church of Jesus Christ in the Old Testament. He loves them. You sell that. If you're going to deny that Jehovah did this miracle, and then there's really nothing special about heaven or a hope of heaven, and there's nothing special about believers and children of God in distinction from unbelievers, Jehovah is showing He loves Israel. And then thirdly, 
It is not just His love, but it's very specifically His grace, His undeserved and unmerited favor. Unbelievers not only deny the miracle, but they also look at a passage like this and many of the passages in the Old Testament that speak of Jehovah's wars, and they say, this Jehovah, I don't like Him. He's bloodthirsty. People are always getting killed and supposedly this is what He wants. He's directing the murder of innocent people. I don't like that, Jehovah. What they don't understand is Jehovah's justice. And that point too I'll develop a little more later, but at the same time I have to point out here, if you're going to look at this from the viewpoint of what Jehovah is doing to the enemy, view it from the viewpoint of His righteousness and justice. But now see His love and grace for Israel, because you know, the Israelites were no different from the kings and the people of Eglon and Jerusalem and all those other cities. Not by nature. Read the history of Israel in the wilderness. You know it. They weren't different by nature. I and you are not different from unbelieving, ungodly people by nature. Why does Jehovah love Israel and us? It's grace. Unmerited favor. And His basis is the person and the work of Jesus Christ in His death on the cross. In fact, what you have to understand about Jehovah is that He's always at war. Always at war. Always at war with sin and sinners. He would be at war with you. He would be at war with me. Had He not, as it were, gone to war with Jesus Christ, who represented us and stood in our behalf and poured out on Christ all His wrath. If Christ had not borne that wrath, He'd be at war with you and me, and He'd be just in pursuing us to our death and destruction as the Israelites did to the others. But He loves us. He shows grace. That you sell if you deny that this is Jehovah's doing. But then there's that second miracle of which verse 14 speaks. The Lord hearkened unto the voice of a man. So I call your attention next to Jehovah's means to perform this miracle. The words of Joshua. We read in verse 12 at the beginning of our text, Then spake Joshua to the Lord... And at the end of the verse, he said to the sun and to the moon. So two things are going on here. Either two things or one thing different from how the King James presents it. According to the King James presentation, Joshua prays to the Lord and then he commands the sun and the moon. Now that would be extremely fitting, wouldn't it? Any man who just thinks, I'm just going to command the sun and the moon, expect they'll obey me and doesn't first bring his cause before Jehovah and say, it's really thy cause, Heavenly Father, for thy sake glorify thy name. Any man who doesn't remember that is also 
a fool. And that's how our King James presents it. And I'm not denying or speaking or arguing against it, but there could be this explanation instead, that instead of of Joshua speaking to the Lord, and then to the sun and moon, Joshua spake for the Lord. The Hebrew word can mean to or for, and in fact it can have another range of meanings as well. Then Joshua spake for the Lord, and he said to the sun and to the moon, stand still. And if you view it that way, still Joshua understands that he represents Jehovah, that he can only do this in the power Jehovah gave him, but he's going to speak in the authority that Jehovah gives. It doesn't matter which way you look at the verse, the authority of of Joshua as coming from Jehovah and Joshua being a servant of Jehovah is underscored. But, the text draws our attention to the amazing character of it. The Lord hearkened unto the voice of a man. When the text says, no day like that before or after it, that the Lord hearkened, it doesn't mean to ignore or minimize the fact that Jehovah hears our voice all the time. When we pray to Him, He hears. That's not being denied. No other point in history did a man command the creation, how the creation was to act, and did the Lord make the creation respond accordingly. That never happened before or since. It's for this reason that I say that Jehovah was here confirming Joshua as the the leader and mediator of the people. The people had understood what miracles Moses had done. But he's dead now. And even many of the Israelites were just children back in those days. Or not even yet born when Israel came out of Egypt. But although they may have understood Moses' power and authority, now that Moses is out of the way, You might have people saying, we don't really need a leader. Yeah, God gave us Moses, but we, and we're glad for that. But we don't really need a leader. We can be okay without a leader. That's the mentality that shows itself in the church of Jesus Christ sometimes. We'll be okay without our leaders. Jehovah God is saying to Israel, you do. And it's not up to you to pick your leader. I've given him to you. And you'd better. You had better. Bow before Joshua's authority. And do as he tells you. Because although he's just a man. And he's just a sinner as you are. He's the man I put. So a question a moment for the congregation. Is that how you view office bearers? in the church of Christ a necessary office and leadership that must be filled by men who are themselves men weak men sinners they'll make mistakes you'll see decisions they make that you don't like but you say I need spiritual leaders 
and the Lord gave me them. And that's what Jehovah is reminding Israel they must do. But then Joshua, who is he? Children, you know that Joshua is a Hebrew name, and it means Jehovah saves. Do you know what that name would be in the Greek? Jesus. And so, even in the very name, as well as the position he holds, Jehovah is saying this Joshua is a picture of Jesus Christ. A picture of Jesus Christ, again, who, as we've already seen, governs all of creation, so that I'm not going to expel that out at length, except to say to believers this, every event that happens in the history of the world, in the weather, in nature, earthquakes, tornadoes, hurricanes, floods, that's Jesus Christ governing the world and saying, all of creation is going to be put in the service of the salvation of Israel, the people for whom Jesus died. If Israel was told, don't be afraid of these five kings and their armies, then you and I are told, not only don't be afraid of Satan and of sin and of other spiritual enemies, but don't be afraid of storms. Don't be afraid of Anything in creation that might cause you fear. Because Jehovah loves you. And he controls it for your good. That's Jehovah's means. But then there's Jehovah's purpose. I'm going to begin with the purpose of God for Israel. And there are three of them. The purpose of Jehovah for Israel in giving and causing the sun and moon to stand still. And listening to the voice of Joshua was first of all that the power of the kingdoms in the whole southern part of the promised land would be broken. I don't want to leave the impression that every single kingdom was destroyed that day. We know they weren't. I also don't want to leave the impression that every single person in these five kingdoms was killed. That also was not true. But I said the power of the kingdoms was broken. First of all, the armies are diminished. Many, many of the soldiers are killed. The five kings are killed. The men who do flee aren't able to gather an army together again and say, we've got to regroup. That happens sometimes in a war. One of the sides gets the upper hand. The other side sees that it's getting the worst of the matter. They say, out of here, we're going to retreat. What do they do when they retreat? They don't take off, go home and say, we lost. They get back together and say, we're going to think of how to do this a second time. These five kings and their armies can't do that. There aren't enough left. So that, first of all, the power of the kingdoms of the south is broken. There's more fighting to do, but Israel sees. They can win. Jehovah has broken the strength of the enemy. In the second place, the purpose of Jehovah for Israel was to see him judge their enemies 
for their wickedness. And now I come back to the justice of Jehovah God. The Canaanites deserved death. We're not arguing that the Israelites deserved life. We're not saying the Israelites were better by nature. But the Canaanites deserved death. The scriptures elsewhere speak of the wickedness of the Canaanites that as it were made them more wicked than any of the people on the earth at that time. A wickedness that had reached its climax and Jehovah said, that is enough. I'm going to destroy them. Remember that the Canaanites are descendants of Canaan, the wicked son of Ham. Remember that among these Canaanites had been the men of Sodom and Gomorrah, whom Jehovah had earlier destroyed for their great wickedness. And that's the picture you have of the Canaanites. They are a picture to the church of Jesus Christ today of the ungodly unbelievers as they gather themselves together and band together and set up governments and kings and as they organize their society so that God is hated, God's people are hated, and they are ready to destroy the church. And that's the evidence here of their, the height of their unbelief. They're going to go fight the Gibeonites and then the Israelites. Does a man not understand what he's doing when he says he's going to fight Jehovah's people? No, unbelieving man doesn't. But he'll never come out ahead. Jehovah's purpose is to show Israel not only his grace to them, but that he will render justice to the wicked for their sins. And so, especially in the context, a point was made that those five kings were killed and their bodies hanged on a tree a picture of the accursed wrath of God. But now what, are, what a warning to us. Because it's not just a matter of everyone in the church God loves, everyone outside of the church God hates. We have grace, they get justice. But even within the church are some who hate Jehovah and would readily fight against Him. And the warning is, He'll do war with you too. And his conduct toward Israel would demonstrate that. He will do war with the unbeliever, be he outside or inside the church of Christ. The third part of Jehovah's purpose for Israel is to assure them. The battle they fought that day was the, represented the largest show of force that they had seen amassed against them since they entered the promised land. Jericho was a strongly walled city. But the people of Jericho sought no help from anyone else. They trusted in themselves. The men of Bethel and Ai didn't seek help from anywhere else. Here, nations are coming together saying, we need to simply overpower them by numbers. And Jehovah is saying to the people, when you see so many, when you see numbers multiplied, when you say we're just one twentieth of the enemy army, we'd better put up the right fla- white flag of surrender right now. Don't you do it. I am with you. And he shows 
and assures Israel of that by causing the greatest army they yet faced to be destroyed. And I said again, in such a way that hailstones and the army turning on itself, Israelites could never say, we did it, but would have to say, he did it. Those are the three aspects of the purpose for the Israelites. Now that begs the question, what does it say to you? What does it say to me? Why must this be written in the inspired Scriptures? In addition to points I've made already, that it points us to the power of Jehovah, His love, His grace, and other virtues in Jesus Christ. It says something to you and to me about battles that we fight today. For you understand, we too fight battles. Battles in our own heart, there's a battlefield there. It's an active battlefield, and it will remain an active battlefield until the day we die. Battles in the church of Jesus Christ, sometimes within the church, sadly, because some in the church do not love what the church stood for and the revelation of God. Those are the battles I have in mind now. There's other times even more, sadly, when there are battles in the church of brother against brother. And then then the real battle we fight isn't so much an issue or a cause in which we can say Jehovah's on this side and he's not on that side. Then the battle we really fight is pride in our own heart. But there's those battles. And then there's the battles of the church against the world, the believer against the unbeliever, in defense of the truth against the lie. The battlefields are always active And you fight and I fight on a number of fronts, internally and externally, and we get discouraged. Sin is bigger than I am. Sin in my heart is bigger than I am. It would destroy me if I didn't fight it, and I can't fight it in my own strength. Sin in the form of Satan, in the form of the wicked world, is bigger than we are. We are no match for it. And yet Jehovah says to us, as it were, be on with it. Don't go stay off in your Gilgal and say to those Gibeonites, take care of your own business. Be on with it. This is your calling. Go fight. And as you fight, remember, I fight the Lord's battles against the Lord's enemies in the Lord's strength. The only caution I have to give, there are people who used these truths to try to justify personal battles and try to pretend that personal battles We're the Lord's battle. No, no, don't do that. When you know you're fighting in defense of the Lord's glory, cause, and for the Lord's church against the world, then understand it's the Lord's cause and the Lord fights for you. And so in the power of the Holy Spirit and using and wearing your Christian armor, be on in the battle. You can with confidence. Again, with confidence, because the Lord of creation, 
has redeemed you and bought you in the blood of Christ. Because there was another day, not a day that lasted 48 hours, there was another day that was cut short at high noon, and the sun was darkened, and the moon didn't shine, and the stars didn't shine, there was no light, for the Lord was pouring out His wrath upon Jesus Christ to earn for you and for me the right to be in the Lord's church, family, and army. And He arose to give us the strength. Identify the enemy and beyond, beloved, in the battle. And what you and I cannot do in our own strength, defeat Satan and sin. Jehovah God will do in and through us weak means. That too is why this passage is recorded in the scriptures. As Joshua and the Israelites fought then, they knew a day was coming. It didn't come soon, but they knew a day was coming when they could put down their weapons. There would come a day when they conquered the kings of the south. Kings of the north. It really wouldn't happen finally from an earthly perspective until King David. But the day would come when there would be peace and rest. And that too is part of the promise and the encouragement embedded in the text and the story here. As you fight, don't think this is just your existence to all eternity. It is your and my existence and calling as long as we live on earth. And that might be for many years yet. But there will come another day when the sun never sets. The light of the countenance and the favor and the glory of God to His people in Jesus Christ and the fellowship we enjoy with Him in heaven and the praises we give Him who fought for us and delivered us are unending. The day comes. Live in faith and hope. Amen. Father which art in heaven, cause to come quickly that heavenly Canaan. But until it comes, give us not to be dismayed because of the enemy, but willingly to fight to the glory of thy name and in defense of thy cause. But keep us humble in the fight, Father, lest any one of us be lifted up in pride and find that thy wrath comes on us as a chastisement. All this we pray for Christ's sake.